Amen. Very good singing. Please be seated. Thank you, Mark, for persevering with your voice to lead us to sing this morning, and for everyone else who has led us thus far up front and behind the scenes. For the record, I have never preached an hour-long sermon in my life, <laughs> but there's a first time for everything, but it will not be today. As most of you know, my wife Meredith and I have four kids, 14-year-old son, 12-year-old son, a 10-year-old daughter, and a 4-year-old son. And when they were very little, we started using a tried and tested way of teaching them the basics of our Christian faith. We would ask them, who made you? And we would teach them the very simple answer, God. What else did God make? Everything. Why did God make you and everything? For His glory and for our joy. And since kids love questions, and since kids love to repeat things, as any parent or grandparent or teacher will know, we would do this with them over and over again, adding new questions and answers along the way. What they didn't realize at the time and I hope they increasingly do as they age, is that these truths are more than big enough for them to grow up into. In fact, as they grow, the meaning and significance of these seemingly simple answers will grow also. In truth, we never graduate beyond these basics because they tell us about God, they tell us about our existence, they tell us about meaning and purpose and significance and eternal satisfaction. They answer the questions that everyone is looking for answers to. Where did we come from? Why are we here? What is wrong with this world and how is it fixed? This morning, timely for a family Sunday, where we are in Exodus brings us back to these basics. My hope and prayer is that we will grow and deepen our understanding of these profound truths that we are all still growing up into. And this on the heels of last week, unexpectedly, though excellently, Jake Tom's preaching on short notice because the day before I lost my voice. I don't have any epic dog stories like he does, but anyway... He asked you all the question, what are we doing and why are we doing it? And I told him that I was playfully going to riff on his sermon title from last week by asking this question, what is God doing and why is he doing it? And when I mentioned this to Jake, along with the answers I am about to give, he said, that kind of sounds like it could be a summary of the book of Exodus. Maybe even the first five books of the scriptures, the Pentateuch, or he said, let's face it, the whole story of the Bible. I agree, which is my reason for asking the question and giving these two answers. What is God doing and why is he doing it? The answer is that God is forming a people for his glory and for our joy. Through Jesus Christ, God is gathering a people who will praise him and delight in him forever and ever. God is forming a people for his glory and our joy. And I'm going to break that up into two parts. So boys and girls, listen carefully. 
Take notes if you can. And if you can come and tell me these two parts, I will go to Costco this week. I will buy a big bag of my favorite lollipops, Chapa Chups, and I will give you one next Sunday, even the chocolate vanilla flavor, which are my favorite. If you are here this morning, but you are not yet a Christian, I encourage you to listen to these foundations of what God is doing in the world and why, because it has everything to do with you. And if you already are a Christian, you will have heard these answers before. But by God's grace, now we are learning more. So turn with me to Exodus 18 to see how today's passage directs us to what God is doing and why he is doing it. It's on page 59 of the Blue Bibles, Exodus 18, 1 through 27. I will pray, I will read it. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the big number 18 is the chapter, the little number is the verse. So you're looking for Exodus and the big number 18, and we're going to read all 27 verses of this chapter of God's Word. But first, let's pray before we hear it again. Lord, what we are doing right now in this room, with one voice speaking and a whole group of people listening, it reflects who you are. There is one true God, the God who is and the God who speaks. And I pray, Lord, that as we hear your word, that by your spirit, everyone in this room will hear your voice and what it is that you would say to us as a church and as individuals for your glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray these things. Amen. Exodus 18, then, beginning in verse 1, this is what the Holy Spirit says. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord, or Yahweh, had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And then the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that Yahweh had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how Yahweh had delivered them. Jethro rejoiced for all the good that Yahweh had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be Yahweh, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. 
And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? And all the people stand around you from morning till evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide for themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, you will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses left his, let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, in what we've just read together, there are two distinct scenes, but they mirror one another. In the first scene, which is verses 8 to 12, God uses Moses to announce to Jethro who Yahweh is and all that Yahweh has done to save a people for himself. This is where we'll find part one of the answer to what God is doing and why. In the second scene, which is 13 through 27, God uses Jethro to tell Moses how his newly saved people should organize so that they will be ready to learn how they should live. This is where we'll find part two of the answer to what God is doing and why. First, part one, is that God delivers us to announce who he is. He saves us so that we can tell people about him, about what he's done for us, so that they'll come to know him as well. God delivers us to announce who he is. As we watch this initial scene unfold, notice some key themes that point us in that direction. First, there is a hearing. Verse 1, Jethro heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. Second, there is a telling. The names of Moses' sons tell something about the story of God working in the lives of his people. And then personally, in verse 8, Moses told his father-in-law all that Yahweh had done. And then third, Jethro responds in faith and worship to this hearing and telling by Moses. And all of this hinges on the emphasis of the Lord's deliverance in verse 8, verse 9, and twice in verse 10. God delivers us to announce who he is. And as verse 1 indicates, this hearing can happen really quite generally. Evidently, it would seem, some news of the goings-on between Pharaoh and Moses, the Egyptians, and the Hebrews have reached the ears of Jethro. 
I'm sure that he and Zipporah and the boys were where they were, eager to learn any news they could about these goings-on uh, and, uh, and as people came and went from Egypt and traveled. When God stretches out his hand to save, the outcomes are seen and felt. The same was most certainly true in the greater exodus that Jesus led through his life, his teaching, his miracles, his death, his resurrection. When this one who was greater than Moses came and he healed and he taught, his fame spread. His teaching was like nothing ever heard before. The news of his death traveled, so did his resurrection. When Paul addresses King Agrippa in Acts 26, 26, he says, For I know the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped us notice, for this has not been done in a corner. So it was in Egypt. God's saving acts, they stamp history both in the first and second exodus, when he works in the midst of his people, others hear about his mighty deeds and his saving acts. It announces who he is. Now, a little closer to home, and a little bit more personally, by virtue of the details of our own lives, we tell a story of who God is and what he's done in the fabric of our families and our homes. As we are told about the separation and reunion of Moses and his family, The very names of his children recount his personal history. Pharaoh wanted to kill Moses 40 years ago for his murder of the Egyptians, so he fled, living as Israel would for 40 years in a land that was not his own. And during that time, he named his son Gershom, which loosely translates into sojourner there or stranger there. Then he had another son. And he names the son Eliezer, which means God is my help, which is very fitting because God was delivered from the sword of Pharaoh, not only on that first occasion, but ultimately in the Exodus. Whether stages of life, names of kids, or other ways we acknowledge God's dealings in our stories, there is and can be a hearing about them. And even more so when we are intentional about weaving them in. Boys and girls, you should go home this afternoon and maybe even ask your moms and dads why they gave you the names that they did. It might tell you something about their faith and their life and what was happening at the time. Now, in addition to this general hearing as God delivers us to announce who he is, there ought also to be a personal telling. That's what happens in this reunion in verses 5 through 8. God delivers us to announce who he is, not just by a general hearing, but in a very pointed, telling way. In verses 5 through 7, we observe Moses honor his father-in-law according to the culture of the time. Jethro sends a message saying, Moses, I'm coming, bringing Zipporah, bringing her boys. He's cared for them while Moses was on this dangerous mission of confronting Pharaoh. When they got sent there, we don't know, but that happened at some point. And when Moses gets the message... Prophet, leader though he is, he's the one that goes out to meet Jethro rather than waiting for Jethro to come to him. He shows him this honor. And then when he sees him, look what the text says. He bows down and he, he bowed down and he kissed him. Now, no offense to my father-in-law who's in the room, but if I haven't seen my wife in some time, he's not the first person I'm kissing. <laughs> I think my daughter might have issue with that too if that was the case. That aside, we do well to give honor to whom honor is due, 
in appropriate cultural ways, no matter our status or standing compared to others, and especially so when we desire a hearing to tell others all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And it might be, and I was convicted about this this past week, it might be that we have not, in our pride, shown enough honor, especially to those in our families. And by not doing so, we might have to work hard to repair some damage that is actually in the way of our sharing the gospel with them. Let us set aside all pride and humbly honor those closest to us in appropriate ways, lest we cause non-gospel offense that doesn't even allow us to get to the gospel. And Moses continues to honor Jethro. They go through the customs. They stand at the door of the tent. They ask each other about each other's shalom or welfare. And then, when all of that's said and done, they go inside the tent, and verse 8 tells us, at that point, Moses told his father-in-law all that Yahweh had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how Yahweh had delivered them. These, these are the personal conversations that those who have been delivered by the Lord from the slavery of sin and threat of death and tyranny of Satan, these are the conversations that they love and long to have with those around them. Are you? Are they the highlight of your day when they happen? Are you praying that such conversations would take place? Are you looking for opportunities where they could take place? Often our zeal to do so, it fades after we first experience salvation in Christ. But the opposite should be the case. The more we grow in the grace and knowledge of what we've been saved from and who we've been saved by and what we've been saved for, the more we will long to declare this glory of God to others. And notice that as Moses tells the tale, he does not shy away from the reality of the hardships encountered. There's no naive optimism here that pretends life in this world is not extremely difficult at times. We can and we should include those dynamics when we tell others a story of how Jesus saved us and what he saved us from. We can't pretend and shouldn't pretend as though everything has always been well and everything always is well. Because that will not resonate even for a moment with people who are languishing in this world without Christ as we once were. Yet at the same time, let us ensure we speak of those hardships in a way that underlines, not obscures, God's deliverance. We don't sensationalize the hardship and the sin that we've been rescued from. That buries the lead that God has saved us. Deliverance is the emphasis, not the hardships that we have been delivered from. Nevertheless, we should speak of them. And this, Peter tells his Gentile audience, as we heard at the very beginning of the service, calling them a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. This telling is one of the express reasons for our being saved. That, Peter says, we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. God is forming a people for his glory. He delivers us to announce to others what he's done and who he's like. We do that together when the church gathers. We do that personally and individually in the conversations we have with those in our lives. And when people hear this, 
when we tell about this, there will be a response. Sometimes it will be apathy. They'll shrug their shoulders. They won't care. Sometimes it will be anger. How dare you say that this is the only way of salvation and that Jesus Christ is the only Lord? Sometimes we will be responded to as though we are the stench of death, repulsive and rejected, but to others. As we witness here, be encouraged. We will be as the fragrance of life. Look how Jethro responds in verses 9 through 12. He hears about all of this, and it tells us that Jethro rejoiced for all the good that Yahweh had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. There's that joy that God made and saved us for. There's delight, there's satisfaction like nowhere else than in the Lord of heaven and earth. As the psalmist declared in his presence, when he brings us to himself through faith in Jesus Christ, there is fullness of joy at his right hand. There are pleasures forevermore. Then Jethro says, blessed be Yahweh. He has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. There's that praise that God made us and saved us to offer. He goes on, now I know. Before, up till this point, for his entire life, he hasn't known this. He's been a priest himself of the gods of Midian. He's heard about how the gods of Egypt have just been put to open shame and their arrogance against Yahweh. And in hearing all of this, he comes to a very different conclusion than he's had until this point. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods. There is that confession we were made and saved to make. Before, Jethro was like many people today who believe that People can worship different gods, and it doesn't really matter in the end. I bought a car this past week, sat across the table from the salesman who happened to be a Lebanese Druze, and this is the type of thing that he was telling me he believes. And we need to tell people otherwise. Like Jethro had been a priest his whole life on service of other gods, now he understands and professes the truth. There is none like Yahweh. And he uses God's name. And today, through Jesus Christ, God is calling all people everywhere to believe and confess one name, the name of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. I love these reflections from Philip Graham Ryken. I, I want to read them. Uh, they're beautifully captured. He says, To be a Christian is to know God's name, specifically the name of Jesus. It is also declare, to declare that Jesus is Lord, that he is the supreme God above all other gods. Jesus is superior in every way, he writes. He is superior in mercy. He grants forgiveness to sinners. He is superior in love. He gave his own life for our sins. He is superior in grace. He offers eternal life as a free gift. He is superior in power because by his resurrection he has triumphed over death. And he is superior in glory, reigning over heaven and earth. No other God, he writes, has even attempted to demonstrate the amazing love and grace that God has shown in Jesus Christ. To have faith is to believe that he is the only one and only Savior, the one and only God of all grace and glory. This is what he made us to proclaim. 
And because he made us to glorify him and enjoy him forever, though we ruined ourselves and our rebellion through Jesus, he has made a way and offer for that to be restored. And in a measure, Jethro experiences this as he delights in Yahweh, as he praises Yahweh, as he confesses the lordship of Yahweh. He enters into the fellowship of God's people and with God himself. Look at what it says. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, verse 12, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. This is what we were made for. This is what God is doing, and this is why he is doing it. He made us to enfold us into the love and the joy and the peace and the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Spirit so that we might glorify and enjoy him forever. And to ensure the spread of this among his people and among the nations, God doesn't only deliver us to announce his glory. That's part one. Here's part two. God organizes us to enjoy his ways. As God forms a people for his glory and for our joy, he doesn't just save us and leave us to our own devices, as the kid's story video indicated this morning. He arranges how his people are to function. God organizes us to enjoy his ways. Now, having just professed this newfound faith in Yahweh, the very next day, Jethro contributes in a surprising and significant way to the life of this fledgling nation. Now, boys and girls, like most of the books that you've read or most of the shows that you watch, whether it's Paw Patrol or maybe not Grizzly and Lemmings, which is our four-year-old's favorite, that just show always ends bad. But like most of the books you've read and most of the shows you've watched, this story follows the same pattern. The story starts as a normal day. Everything's fine. Then there's a problem. Something bad happens. Something goes wrong. Then there's a solution to the problem, and everything ends better than it started. That's what happens. In verse 13, it's a regular day. Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. This seems to be what Moses is doing. In his role as prophet, as mediator, Moses fills this judicial judge role for the people of Israel. When they've got a problem, where do they go? They go to Moses. Why do they go to Moses? Well, because Moses has been the go-between between them and God. That's what a mediator is. And when Jethro watches all the people standing around all day waiting their turn, which sounds about as fun as going to Service Ontario when it opens and not being seen by anyone by the time it closes, that when Jethro watches this judicial backlog, he asks some pretty revealing questions. Uh, Moses, what on earth are you doing? What? <laughs> What is it that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? And everyone stands around you from morning till evening. And then in verse 15, we hear Moses' good intentions. He says, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Now, I admire greatly what Moses is seeking to do here. And this is where I 
build my case that God organizes us to enjoy who he is. Having been delivered from under the hand of the Egyptians, having been freed from the tyranny of Pharaoh, Moses is working as hard as he possibly can to ensure that this newly saved people walk in the glorious, beautiful, delightful freedom of God's ways and God's laws. How could we not commend him for his efforts? Blessed are those who fear Yahweh, who walk in his ways, the psalmist says. That's what Moses longs for God's people. In all of their arguments, in all of the cases that they bring, in all of the areas of life that they want advice about, Moses labors to ensure that they start living like the kingdom of priests that God is going to make them. In the New Testament, we see the apostles write letters to Christ's church with the same aim, which Jake mentioned last week. Through Jesus, consider how God has delivered you from the kingdom of this world and darkness and sin and Satan and death. And then in light of that, make every effort to walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Make every effort to walk worthy of the gospel of who God has already made you to be by his grace and strengthens you to be by his grace. This is what uh, God's people want for God's people. That's what we should all want for those of us who have been formed by God for his glory and for our joy. Now, apparently, there are harder and easier ways to go about this. There are better and worse ways to go about this. There are good and bad ways to go about this. The problem in Exodus 18 is that Moses is working hard but not smart. Moses isn't just there for a good time. He's there for a really, really long time. And so is everybody else. And it's terribly ineffective. In verse 17 and 18, Jethro pulls no punches. He puts his finger on the problem. He calls it like he sees it. What you are doing is not good. It's not good, Moses. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do this alone. Moses, you're going to burn out. You're going to burn the people out. This is unsustainable. Look around. They're exhausted. They're frustrated. They're still waiting. And for two episodes in a row now, Moses' limitations are on display a couple weeks ago, we saw that the staff of God was too heavy for him to hold by himself during the battle with the Amalekites. And here we see the weight of judging every matter that arose among the people was too heavy for him also. By himself, it was impossible to listen to thousands upon thousands of people gathering around him to bring every case so that he could teach them and apply God's word to that situation. We learned two lessons from this. First, as great as Moses was, and seriously, there is a tremendous amount to be learned from this man of God, imperfect though he is. As great as he was, we long for someone greater. We need a superior prophet, a limitless judge, an inexhaustible mediator between ourselves and the Lord of heaven and earth. And thanks be to God that in Christ we have one. Christian, you can speak to the Lord Jesus, the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ right now, 
at the same time as every other Christian in this room, at the same time as every other Christian on this planet, at the same time, and Jesus can listen to every single one of us. It's not too heavy for him. He's incredible. If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian and you are longing for someone who will bring justice your way, if you're longing for someone who can bring you to God, if you are in your guilt and your shame and thinking, how could God love someone like me like this, you can go to Jesus Christ and he will bring you to God the Father. It is not too heavy for him. We have a superior judge and prophet and mediator in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. What we also learn from this account is the possibility of having the right desires, having the right intentions, but doing them in the total wrong way. It's possible to work incredibly hard in service to God and his people, but in a way that causes harm to ourselves and others due to a lack of wisdom or organization or of structure. Moses seems to be employing the God-given gift of leadership, which God gives because he wants his people to have direction. However, he's failing to employ the God-given gift of administration, which God gives because he wants his people to actually reach those certain destinations. Moses, however, has become a bottleneck. He's actually getting in the way of the outcome he's trying to work towards. And this should teach us humility. We should be willing to give and receive godly criticism to one another. When we're running hard and we're trying to serve the Lord, we should be open to the fact that we might be doing it wrong. And we might need the help of God's people. We sometimes might need even wisdom that is found in common grace outside of the church in order to operate effectively as God's people. As it seems here, God has sent Moses' father-in-law, this recent convert, to fix the situation. Based on what Jethro says to Moses and how Moses humbly implements Jethro's advice, this convinces me from the text that God forms a people for his glory and our joy. He delivers us to announce who he is. He organizes us to enjoy his ways. From verse 20, we see that Jethro wants what Moses wants, which we know from all that's coming is the same as what God wants. He says, obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. That's not going to change. You shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. That's not going to change either. Jethro is not suggesting in any way, shape, or form that Moses step back from his role as prophet, as mediator. The people still need someone to speak to God on their behalf. God has still called Moses to speak to the people on his behalf. Moses will still foretell God's word so that they learn to walk in the delightful ways of Yahweh in all of life. That destination has not changed. That's still the aim. God is forming a people for his glory and our joy. Yet, God uses Jethro who himself has served as a priest, and maybe he's learned these things along the way, God uses Jethro to develop a system, a structure, so that this outcome of God's people enjoying his ways can be realized. So instead of Moses judging every single situation, my neighbor stole some of my manna from my tent, 
able men would be put in place to deal with these lesser situations. A judicial system is developed. An organizational structure would be applied. A polity would be implemented. And it's brilliant. And it's timely. Right before the giving of the law and the book of the covenant, God arranges his people for his law to go from Moses to qualified men who will be able to teach and apply God's word to all the people in all of life. Upon delivering us, he wants us to know him, to know his ways, and to experience the profound, unsurpassable blessing of walking in them because they are life and light and freedom and joy. Yet this structure only works in as much as it is sound. A rotten trellis will not long support the flourishing of a vine. So Jethro advises in verse 21, Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, and hate a bribe. So please, please note that before Jethro speaks of the roles these men would fill, before he identifies the different degree of responsibility they would have, he addresses the character requirements. So the same is true for elders in the church today. Character, character, character. They're to be able men or men of strength or men of valor. They need to be up for the task, which is going to be demanding and constant. Verse 26 indicates they judge the people at all times. They are to be fearers of God, which is the beginning of wisdom, which these men will need in their judicial role as they apply God's instruction to all sorts of situations. They are men who tremble at God's word with delight, who know they are accountable to God and thus will hold the line of Scripture. As many of you have been learning on Sunday evenings in First Principles, such men would not dare to go above the line of Scripture and say more than God's Word says, nor would they go below the line of Scripture to say less than what God says. As such, these would be men of truth, men whose Word is faithful, men whose words you never have to doubt or question or double-check. What they say can always be counted on. And men in such a role, as Jethro was suggesting, must also be haters of bribes. They're to be incorruptible. Men who would not be swayed by the money of the wealthy or by the favors of the powerful. Men who understand that the position that they hold is for God and for others, it is not for themselves. And this is how all authority given by God is to be wielded in the home, in the church, and in the world. And Jethro says, look among all the people. These are not just your friends, Moses. Look among all the people and find such men as these. And when you find them, according to their gifts, he says, put them in charge of the people as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, or of tens, which is kind of like a military organization. Let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves so it will be easier for you. They will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. With this organization in place, which has a built-in hierarchy, the load is shared, Moses' help, people are served, 
God's instruction spreads, and God's people dwell in peace. This is the wisdom of God. He's organizing a people for his glory and for their joy. And I'm so thankful for this wisdom and so thankful to the Lord for how it was on display even this last week in the life of our church when every single one of our staff elders was absent and we had this, we have this plurality of elders and other brothers able to step in and serve God's people. This is how God organizes his church. As Jethro submits this to Moses, very much with God's leading in view, Moses humbly listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. The system is implemented, and then in verse 27, Jethro departs from Moses on even better terms than when he had arrived in verse 27. As a worshiper of Yahweh, and having been used immediately in the organization of God's people. And now, God's people, having been saved, are perfectly positioned to receive God's instructions for all of life so that they will live as this kingdom of priests he is making them to be. And as they live in right relationship with God, as they live in right relationship with each other, as they live in right relationship to the creation that God has made, the outcome of this is that the surrounding nations would see the glory of God and the incomparable blessing of being in covenant relationship with himself. Because God is forming a people for his glory and for our joy. He delivers us to announce who he is. He organizes us to enjoy who he is. And in these regards, nothing has changed in the church of Jesus Christ. We have elders who serve by leading. We have deacons who lead by serving. We have church members who are to be equipped for the work of the ministry with Jesus Christ as the head of all of us. An organization, a structure, an arranging so that our life together as God's people declares who he is and all that he has done, even in the way that we are organized. And this so that others might see and hear and fear and put their trust in him. This is God's evangelism strategy for the nations. It's his church, delivered, formed, organized, and sent. Those are the basics. And may God help us return to them again and again to grow up into them more and more so that what we sing now together would be so. The words of the song that we'll be led in are this, May the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad. All your blessing comes that we may praise. May praise the name of Jesus. Let's sing that together.